Well, this morning we're going to continue our series on unlikely heroes of the faith, and we're going to look at the life of David, King David. He's a figure that many of us are familiar with, and we're going to be looking at some of his successes, some of the things that he did well, why God chose him. But as Lance mentioned, we're also going to look at some of his failures, most tragically his sin with Bathsheba. And we're going to hopefully use that as a warning to us of how we need to watch over our own hearts and our eyes and and to guard ourselves from temptation and that it's out there. And I'm going to then give us some suggestions and some suggestions especially to us parents and for our kids, but for you college students coming to school here, uh, the importance that we value being holy because God has called us to be holy and that we pursue holiness and purity in our lives. We're also going to see a video at the end of uh, this message about some people that have struggled and how they found recovery through a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. It's a powerful testimony of how God has worked in their lives. And then we're going to conclude with sharing communion together. And Paul exhorts us to not take that in an unworthy manner. So before we take communion, there will be a time where we ask God to prepare our hearts in a time of confession and an opportunity to repent. And so that we as a church family can partake of the Lord's Supper with clean hands and a pure heart. So that's where we're going today. We're going to begin, as I mentioned, with David. There's a lot we could say about this guy. He's a famous figure in scripture, and let's kind of set the stage here for where he falls historically. He's one of what I call the big three kings. This is during the time of the united monarchy before the kingdom split, and we won't have time to go into the divided kingdom, but that was after Solomon. Before King Saul, it was in the period of the judges, and the people wanted a king. They were clamoring and asking for a king, and Samuel was the prophet, the spokesperson for God at that point. So Samuel, in obedience to God, said, okay, we'll find you a king. So Saul was really the people's choice, if you will. Tall and handsome, he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a natural leader. We would have picked him because he was just oozing with leadership and natural ability, and he was handsome. You ladies would have admired his looks, and he was chosen. He ruled for 40 years. His kingdom ended in failure because the Holy Spirit left him as a result of his disobedience. And God removed his reign, and he called a young shepherd boy named David, who also ruled for 40 years. That's going to be our focus today, is his this 40-year period of David's kingship and even leading up to that. And then after David, his son Solomon took the throne, and he also ruled for 40 years. So we have three kings, each ruling for 40 years. David was in the middle. David, and this is the title of this message, had a great title in the sense of what he was called. David was a man after God's own heart. Isn't that a great way to describe somebody? Stuart, wouldn't you want somebody to describe you that way? I, I would. I mean, that's a great way for us. That's right. You better stay awake in here. Uh, you <laughs> want to have that on your, maybe your epitaph. You know, here lies Brad, a man after 
God's own heart. You could do a lot worse. Because what we're saying here by that statement is that David had a heart that was loyal to God. He was a follower of God, follower of God and he was devoted to the Lord. King David, a man after God's own heart. Well, why did uh, God choose David? We're going to get into that in just a minute, but let me kind of look into a little bit of his lineage. Last week, if you're here, Trey spoke on Ruth, and we learned at the very end of his message that Ruth married her prince in shining armor, Boaz. And at the end of the story, Boaz being a type of Christ, we see the picture of grace and we see the picture of God's redemptive love uniting these two. Well, Ruth and Boaz, they have a son, and his name is Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has eight sons, and the runt of the litter is none other than a guy named David. David was an amazing man who was a shepherd boy, and God chose him. And we're going to look at that in just a minute, but... David also is very significant in that he was the person that God came and told him he would make a a covenant with him, a messianic covenant, and from his lineage would come the Messiah. Look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Here we see the prophet Nathan speaking on behalf of the Lord and making an eternal covenant with David, King David. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. Skip down to verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. He's talking about Christ here, the Messiah. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at verse 15. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. We're going to talk about that in a minute. What what Saul did wrong. Whom I removed from before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. The Davidic covenant that God made with a very special man that from his lineage, his bloodline, would come the Messiah. And if you look in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew writing to the Jews to validate who Jesus Christ is. In chapter 1, you see the lineage of Jesus Christ, which includes Ruth and Obed and Jesse and David. He's included in Matthew chapter 1. David is mentioned 58 times in the New Testament because of his influence of this prophecy, of his, uh, the Davidic covenant. In fact, Jesus Christ referred to himself as the son of David, going back to his the, the roots that he had in his lineage, but also that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy that a Messiah would come from the house of David who would rule. Jesus Christ, and at this time, they expected Christ to take over and overthrow Rome and become a ruler at that time. But of course, that was not his plan. He came and died on a cross for our sins and now uh, was resurrected and now reigns 
supreme and triumphantly at the right hand of the Father, but someday he's coming back. And we as the church are in a period where we await his return, where he will reign triumphantly for a thousand years as the Messiah. So Christ referred to himself as the son of David, and David was a foretype of the coming of Christ. David also was from the tribe of Judah. This is significant in the fulfillment of this prophecy because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was referred to as the Lion of Judah. And it was from this tribe that the Messiah would come. David, there's a lot of things we could say about him. But boys love to read about David because he had a sword and he was a warrior and uh, he was victorious. And so he's a, he was a mighty man of valor, a natural leader. People love to follow David. And he had a huge influence. You would want to take David on in battle. This guy could wield a sword and he could lead an army. And he was amazing as a warrior. David was also a worshiper. And you wonder, how did he get to that point where he had such a soft and tender heart for the Lord? Well, you know, I think it was those days that he was out with the sheep and he saw the storms on the side of the mountain and he had given care of the sheep and he learned to depend upon the Lord. And David had a very precious relationship with his God. In fact, he went on to write 73 that we know of, possibly more, but at least 73 of the Psalms were written by King David describing his relationship with his God. Let me mention one of the most famous sections of Scripture, Psalm 23. The Lord is what? Not just anybody's shepherd. David's saying, God, Lord, Yahweh, I am that I am. You are my shepherd. David had an amazing relationship with his God. And as he writes in the Psalms, he writes in a way that connects with us. Because we can relate to his struggles. And he doesn't hold back. He talks about times that he's angry. He talks about times that he's suffering. He talks about times that he's hurting. He talks about times that he's feeling alone or betrayed in his struggle and his running from Saul's uh, persecution. He talks about life and we can relate to the Psalms. My Bible just falls open to the Psalms. I love the Psalms because it describes a man And I think he wrote most of these as an older man looking back in his life and what he's saying that I've been through some rough times, but through it all, the Lord is my shepherd and he was faithful to me. And his psalms were later read in the temple and sung in the temple as hymns of praise as the worshiping community comes together. And we sing many of these songs today as we come together and worship. David, many things we could say about him, but he was also a tragic figure. He was a man who had many successes. He also had a number of failures. In the years that Saul was persecuting him, he lived in caves and fled for his life. And at one point, pretended that he was a madman and allowed saliva to run down his beard so that they wouldn't find him out. I believe his character was forged during this time. I think God really used some of his struggles to to deepen him and develop him. But he also had some monumental failures. Most notably, we're going to talk in a moment about his sin with Bathsheba, which should stand as a lesson to us to live lives of, of purity, because what can happen when we choose to 
allow sin to remain private and we allow our flesh to go unchecked. We'll look about that in just a little bit. But why did God choose David? You ever wonder about that? Could have chosen a lot of people. Well, Scripture gives us some indication. Number one, as I've mentioned, he had a heart for God. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul had messed up. He had pretended to be priest. And he, instead of waiting on Samuel, he had gone in and performed some priestly functions. And this, he was disobedient to God. And God was upset with Saul and said, because of this, I'm going to remove your kingship. And he removed the Holy Spirit from Saul. Today that won't happen. As a believer, when we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us and he will never leave us. But at this time, the Spirit resided on prophets and kings and it was meant for a special working of the Lord. And so God took his spirit from Saul. And we read here in 1 Samuel 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have you establish your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. So if you're Samuel and you're there and you're taking notes, okay, God's appointed me to find the next king. Point number one, I need to find a man that has a pure heart, a man who loves the Lord, a man after God's own heart. Another reason God chose David, he was a humble servant. And so as you're thinking about this and we're hearing about David's life, these are some hallmarks of leadership as we think about being used by God and being godly leaders in our home or wherever God has led us. These are some traits that we want to have demonstrated in our own life. Not only a heart for God, But David was a humble servant. We read in Psalm 78, and he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From a place of lowly, humble service, David demonstrated faithfulness. Psalm 89, I found David my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him. A third quality that we see in David is that he was a man of integrity. From Psalm 78, from the care of ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. Integrity. It means there's a wholeness that his walk and his talk lined up. David was a man of integrity. Where did he get this? I really believe a lot of this, again, happened in his early years, his childhood years, his teenage years, where he was given responsibility. Parents, we need to be giving our kids responsibility. Sometimes they'll fail. But David was given responsibility to watch over a flock of sheep. And we read in the account where David is about to take on Goliath. And he sees Goliath um, taunting the armies of the living God. And he just shows up to bring some food to his three oldest brothers. And he said, who is this that you allow this uncircumcised Philistine to taunt the armies of the living God? And they're like, well, because he's nine feet tall. That's why. And so they were scared of Goliath. David said, I'll take him on. And they're like, yeah, right. His brother, Eliab, made fun of him. You just came out for a show. Here goes somebody make fun of you brother made fun of him. 
Well, this gets the attention of Saul. Saul says, bring the young man in. He said, well, if you're going to fight Goliath, you've got to have all the, my sword and all, all my, um, what am I trying to say? Armor. There we go. Armor. <laughs> group participation here. You've got to wear my armor to go out. Well, it didn't fit him. And, and he said, I can't do this. And so he said, well, why should you go fight him? He said, because the Lord is with me and the Lord has given me victory over the lion and the bear when he was taking care of the sheep. And the point I want to make in terms of integrity, because we're going to see in a little bit his lapse of integrity. Write this down if you're taking notes. Victories in private lead to greater victories in public. See, David was by himself and he could have run away and allowed the lion and the bear to take on the sheep and kill the sheep. But he stood fast because the Lord was with him. And here was a man after God's own heart who'd said, I'm going to watch over these sheep and I'm going to be faithful to these sheep. And God saw that what seems like a little insignificant thing. And he elevated David because he was victorious when nobody else was watching. Isn't it easy to click on that Internet and go somewhere where we shouldn't? Because nobody will know. Isn't it easy to whisper a little something about somebody? Isn't it easy to sin in private? And one of the things I want to hear, you, hear, hear us saying together this morning is that no, God knows. And we need to have victories in private that will lead to greater victories in public. Because if we don't, if we compromise in private, it's going to have an effect on our integrity and our character and our ability for God to use us at times later in public. David had victories in private. He was integrous. He was skillful with his hand. And this is why God chose him. David, a man after God's own heart. As I mentioned, he was a shepherd boy in 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel is searching for the next king. He comes to the house of Jesse. He said, Jesse, let me see your sons. So Jesse's parading his sons. Eliab, the oldest, is there. And like Saul, here's this big, tall, handsome guy. And and, uh, Samuel thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But God said, no. I don't look at the outer appearance. I look at the heart. So Samuel's going, oh, okay. Still got some more work to do. So Jesse, keep him coming. They all go by him. He said, do you have any other sons? Yeah, there's one more the shepherd boy. He's out tending the sheep. Samuel says, we're not sitting down until I meet this kid. So we read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy and beautiful and with a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah and Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Imagine that. You're out tending sheep and all of a sudden, come on in. And you have oil poured over you and you're going, wait a minute. This is what they do to kings. And I think David was just blown away. But the spirit of the Lord came upon this young man. God began to use him. Saul heard about it. Saul heard about his... um, Ability to, um, we'll get to this in just a second, heard about his ability to worship and, and this evil spirit on Saul was troubling him. And so he brought David in to play the harp in this temple. And when he played the harp, it would soothe 
Saul. David goes on, he defeats Goliath. I've already talked about that. And isn't that just like God? To take a little boy, and he's probably still in his teenage years, the armor wouldn't fit him, and he took a stone and he killed this nine-foot giant and cut off his head because, to give glory to God? And this is a story that we're familiar with. You know, we have a child's story Bible for little, little ones, the, the young ones, you know, the ones that have cardboard pages. And uh, you can only have so many stories in your cardboard page Bible, you know, maybe 15, I don't know. But David and Goliath's in there because this is, this is a huge event in the nation of Israel and for what God has done with this man. Well, after David fe- defeats Goliath, um, there's trouble in River City here because Saul is jealous. Look at chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, verse 8. And the women sang as they played. They're all coming back in and they're celebrating the defeat of the Philistines. And the women sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul became very angry. Verse 9, and Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Saul was very jealous of David. David was loyal, though. His best friend was Saul's son, Jonathan. They have an amazing friendship. You want to read about friendships and loyalty? Look at the relationship that David and Jonathan have. Saul tries to kill him, though. At least twice, we, it's recorded that he tries to pin him to the wall with a spear while David's playing the harp. And Saul is uh, upset with David and jealous of David and chases him. So David begins a time where his character is forged while he's fleeing from Saul and he's hiding in caves and out in the wilderness. And this goes on for years. And there's a dialogue that goes back and forth between David and Jonathan, pleading with Jonathan to intercede on his behalf for David uh, to Saul. But Saul uh, continues on. And finally, there's a battle at the end of 1 Samuel. We read that uh, the Philistines overpower Saul. And Saul is struck and wounded and he falls on his sword uh, to take his own life. And his sons are all killed. Jonathan's killed except for one. And now in 2 Samuel, David in Hebron is anointed as king, but only over a section of Israel. Another son of Saul remains. And so now there's a civil war that breaks out and David eventually is victorious And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is anointed as king over all of Israel. And so now what happens, he returns the ark, he defeats the Philistines, they have a triumphant entry, there's joyous celebration, the the ark of the covenant is back where it belongs, in the temple, Um, and we see that David unites the kingdom, he's a tremendous leader, we have a tremendous period of military success and prosperity and Israel is mighty and the most powerful nation at this time because God has used this man, David, his leadership and this man who's a warrior and a king and the nation is prospering. Well, that's the good news. It goes downhill. What's David's downfall? King David's downfall. What do you notice about this list? Do you recognize any names on this list? This list, and I went through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles to come up with this list. These are David's wives, okay? In the law in Deuteronomy, it instructed the king to have one wife so that his 
loyalty would not be turned against the Lord. This was David's weakness. Okay? David had many wives. He disobeyed God. He pursued his passions with a number of women. God's best, God's design is one man, one woman entering into the covenant of marriage. In that context, sex is wonderful. It's a gift from God and it is to be a wonderful experience. David, unfortunately, was not satisfied and he continued on. In fact, at point number nine, other wives and concubines, we don't even know how many he had. But I will tell you that looking at the genealogies, that there were more sons and daughters born to him by number nine than the other eight combined. So he had a whole bunch of them. And David was not satisfied with what he had. Now, this is a principle in regard to our sexuality. In college students and and young adults, it's very important to understand this dynamic. We tend to think that we have this urge. And by the way, in that context, it is a God-given desire to to be fulfilled in the right relationship. Um, In fact, let me give an example. The word lust, is that positive or negative? The word lust is actually a neutral word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word epithumia. Did you know that we're to lust after God? That we were to be passionate for God. And when we're up, we're worshiping God. We're to worship in spirit and truth with passion and acknowledge that he is the creator God. And he created us. And we are to worship him with all of our total being. We're to love the Lord of all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to be passionate about God. That's not a negative term. Lust can be used in a negative sense. And when our flesh comes into using lust, it is is a very negative aspect. But the word itself is neutral. So what I'm saying is David was a man of passion and rightly focused. His passion was used to bring honor and glory to God. And he danced before the Lord as the ark was brought back. He wrote the Psalms. God used his passion. But when his passions turned in the sexual sense and not being satisfied by one woman. Job talks about, I've made a covenant with my eyes and I will not look at another woman. What happens is instead of, and this happens with us in our sexuality, when we go outside of God's will and we go on the internet or or we have an affair and we think, well, that's going to satisfy us, just the opposite happens. It's like pouring gas on fire. And we just want more. We just want more. We just want more. And that's what happens to David. Dr. John Hanna, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, I was taking a, uh, listening to a lecture. I wrote this down. I haven't seen it in print anywhere, but it made an impact on me. He said, sin has serious consequences. They will find you out. If you do not bring your passions under the Lord's control, they will destroy you. And this particular sin destroys David. And his household. Now, you're sitting here going, hey, you know, I don't struggle with that one. That's great. I, as a pastor, we hear about a lot of issues and a lot of things, and it could be alcohol, it could be eating disorders, it could be whatever, but we tend to try to numb ourselves from the pain and try to find our satisfaction, as we sang about earlier, in the things of this world, and only Christ can satisfy us as we're going to talk about. And we have to bring our passions and our desires under the Lordship of Christ 
One of the, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And the Lord will give that to us if we're obedient to him. And, and we're in his word and we're surrounded with believe, other believers. But David didn't. Second Samuel chapter 11, I'd like for you to look there. We see David's sin with Bathsheba. We, look, we see that David no longer had victories in private. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab, that was his general, Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But, Bible students, when you see but, what does that mean? In contrast, David stayed at Jerusalem. David should have been at battle. He should have been out there with his troops, leading his troops. Instead, he stayed at home. One of my dad's favorite sayings growing up, I grew up on a farm, was that idleness is the devil's, what? Workshop. He loved to say that. <laughs> loved to keep us working, you know. And that's certainly true. Here's David. He's back in Jerusalem. You know, it's late at night. Kind of cruising around the palace. Got some time on his hands. Instead, I mean, he had all these wives and concubines. But instead, look what happens. Verse 2, when evening came around, David rose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. One of the books I want to recommend is a book called David by Chuck Swindoll. It's a character study. And in this book, in describing this episode, Swindoll writes that when the Bible says a woman is very beautiful, she is very beautiful. And that was certainly true of Bathsheba. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Okay, so she's a married woman, David. She's taken. Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. When she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, as according to the, to the law, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Uh-oh. David's got a trouble now. Tried to have this little thing in private, but now it's going to become public because Bathsheba's pregnant. So what he does, he sends for Uriah. He has Joab send Uriah back from the battle, and he says, Uriah, go in and have some time with your wife, because he was trying to cover this up. Uriah, the Hittite, by the way, it's interesting that phrase is in there, because it almost means he's disposable. You know, Uriah, the Hittite was a loyal man. While his troops were in the field, he wouldn't go in to be with his wife. He slept on the threshold. David found out about it. So the second night, he said, come on, Uriah, get some drunk, go be with your wife. He still wouldn't go in with his wife, sleeps on the threshold. So David sends him back to the battle with a letter to give to Joab, to give to Joab which says, put him at the front of the battle in the fiercest place and pull back from him so that he will be struck down and killed. And that's what happens. Look at the end of chapter 11, verse 26. Bathsheba Here's about the death of her husband. Now the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So God sends Nathan to confront David. He confronts David using an uh, illustration and ends up saying, David, you're the man in the story that's guilty. 
And by the way, what was David, what could have been happened according to the law to David? He could have been stoned, should have been stoned, but the Lord saw compassion on him. And I've, I've, you know, I've wondered about this. What David did was a lot worse than what Saul did. Why does David end up being forgiven and restored when Saul was, had the kingdom removed from him and the spirit removed from him? I think it's because of David's response. Verse 11, chapter 12, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes, give them to your companion. He shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. David, I'm going to forgive you, but your, your family is going to be a mess. And that's what happens. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. We, nothing is done in secret. Okay? Late at night, when you think nobody's watching... God knows. He's watching. He knows. Nothing happens in secret. Verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, because they knew about it. They saw what the king had done. They heard about it. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. Sin has consequences. We see the consequences. Bathsheba bore a son and he dies. David's family implodes, comes completely unglued. Amnon, one of his sons, rapes his half-sister Tamar in chapter 13. Absalom, Tamar's brother, waits for two years and took his vengeance and kills Amnon. Amnon is dead now. And because of that, David doesn't want to have anything to do with Absalom. So, so would not even allow him into his presence. So Absalom to get his attention sent, he set Joab, David's general's wheat field on fire. So David said, okay, okay, come on in. And you ever know how, notice that parents, sometimes our kids will do something and try to get our attention. We need to be attentive to what they're saying to us. David was a terrible father. So as a result of this, Absalom begins to win people over. He sat by the city gates and he said, hey, I'm your guy. David doesn't really know what's going on. Wins the people over. And he ends up sending 3,000 people after David. Once again, David has to flee for his life. He's, he's living in caves again. There's a civil war. Absalom's end up uh, dying. David mourns his death. And it goes on and on. And it's horrible. It's tragic. And the lesson here is that yes, when we sin, God is waiting with open arms for us to confess our sin to Him. And He wants to forgive us. But there are consequences to our sin. And in David's case, this cost him so much with his family. The wages of sin is death. That's certainly true when we're not believers, causing separation from us and a holy God. The wages of sin is eternal separation. But the wages of sin can be death to a relationship or a marriage. And that's why I'm talking about this topic, because I'm telling you, as a pastor, I see this issue, sexual sin. I see Satan attacking our families. I see him attacking students. I've seen my own brother experience a moral failure because of this. I've seen families ended up with a divorce because of Satan's attack and people allowing their flesh 
to not come under the Lord's reign and allow their flesh to lead to sin. This is a a big issue. David is restored. Uh, Lance read Psalm 32. It's a model for restoration where David is honest with God and he comes before him and he confesses his sin. We don't have time to look there, but Psalm 32, 1 through 7 is a model for us of where David says, Blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in his spirit there is no deceit. God, I'm open, I'm honest, I'm, and he talks about the pain that he experienced and the suffering, and your hand was heavy upon me. And that's what happens when as believers, when we don't confess our sin, the heaviness of the Lord and, and the, the distance of our fellowship with God. It was so painful to him. But then he confessed his sin and he was honest with God and the Lord forgave him and the Lord restored him. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, renew a steadfast spirit within me. If you're here this morning and there's some sin that is, you're trying to keep in private that you don't want to tell anybody about, my admonition to you and to me is be honest with God. Be honest with him and be honest with others who care about you. How Satan can attack us, he can attack us when we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, when we're tired, when we're envious, when we are discouraged. It's the word halted. This will be online. But Satan knows our weaknesses and he can attack us during those times. This is a difficult subject to talk about, but I feel like we must because of Satan's attack and because of the effect that sex and pornography is having on families. And and many of you students, you're showing up to college, some of you for the first time, and wow, got internet, let's plug this in. And I'm urging you to put a filter on that thing and to have an accountability partner because here's why, here's what's going on. $12 billion per year are spent on porn in the United States. 200 porn movies are made in the United States per week. 4.2 million porn websites. 25% of internet searches are for pornography. This next one is the one that gives me chills. Average age of first exposure to pornography, 11. 11. Parents, we've got to protect our kids. We've got to. I, I, I really believe, parents, we are irresponsible if we don't have a filter on our computer and if we're not talking to our kids about sex, we start early. And I've got some resources I'll be glad to talk to you about. Last uh, uh, week before last, we were at Pine Cove, and they did something really neat. For teenagers, they had a, a purity right night. And with our almost 16-year-old daughter, and we've been talking about this, and she wanted to do it, we gave her a purity ring. We got it at, Susan got it at James Avery, and it says, True Love Waits. And she made a covenant with us that she was going to keep herself pure until marriage. God, praise God. I pray that she will do that. 80% 15 to 17-year-olds have seen hardcore. 53% of Christian men consume porn. This statistic came from a promise keepers convention. These are men trying to walk with God. And they said that the week before they came to the promise keepers convention, they had looked at porn. 28% 28% of women, this has really spiked. It's to see more and more women that are, that are um, getting caught in this and ensnared in this. So in summary, men and women in a group this size, one out of three of us in, in this room are 
regularly using pornography. These statistics come from The Shadow of the Net by Patrick Carnes. One other thing, I was talking to a pediatrician, and he told me that in the American Journal of Pediatrics, they just released a recent survey, that one-third of high school students, one-third of high school students in America either right now or have had a sexually transmitted disease. One-third. Now, that's scary, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we need to look at God's teaching on this topic. There's only one acceptable form of sex in God's eyes, and in this context it's wonderful and beautiful, physical intimacy between a man and a woman within the God-given safety and security of the covenant of a marital relationship. True love waits. In that context, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's intended to be pleasurable. Yes, children can come from that, but it's intended to be the expression of a one flesh union. Two have become one in Genesis chapter 2. All other forms, adultery, homosexuality, sexual fantasy, are unacceptable to God and are sin. Uh, You can look this up. I'm going to keep going here, but here's some... Scriptures on the biblical view of sex, this will be online. But the point I want to make here is even before children, God gave this gift to Adam and Eve. And they were naked and not ashamed. And they were to express this to each other. Our calling to purity as believers, as followers of Christ, those who have been set apart, those who are bodies or temples of His Holy Spirit, that we are to pursue holiness. God says, you shall be holy For I am holy. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. We sin because we choose to sin. God has given us freedom, not only forgiveness from the penalty of sin, But he's given us freedom from the power of sin. Praise God. That's who we are. And we need to live that out as followers of Jesus Christ. Applications. Be honest with ourselves as David was. Be honest with God. Confess our sin to him. Admit it. Don't hide it. Be honest with others. James 5 talks about confess your sin one to another. That you may be healed. There's something happens when I have an accountability person and I share my sins, share my struggle. That control, it, it breaks and that sin is brought to light. Confess our sin, experience forgiveness. Get accountability. Do you have accountability? Is someone asking you how you're doing in this area? If not, you're vulnerable. You need someone asking you on a weekly basis, how are you doing? Protect our families, especially our children. By the way, the best filter is the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk about filters in a second, but time in the Word, allowing God's Spirit to be in control is the best filter that's available. If you're struggling in this area or another area, would you talk to me or one of our pastors or one of our home church leaders or adult Bible fellowship leaders or someone, one of our elders or deacons? Talk to someone. Talk to a roommate. Get some help. Get help. Don't get yourself off the field of battle because 
of some sin, whatever the sin may be. Celebrate Recovery is a wonderful ministry. My name's Betty, and I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and in the past I've struggled with codependency. I'm Joe, and I'm a Christian who has struggled with addiction issues. For me, it was alcohol, though, and alcohol, unfortunately for me, kind of became a deal. Uh, It it became life-threatening to me. Codependency is where I base my self-value and worth on what other people think of me. But today, you know, I know that through uh, Celebrate Recovery, my value and my worth is in Jesus Christ. God has really taught me that all of the hurts uh, and, and things of my past can be used for His glory. God cares about my life. You know, today, He is in charge of my life. I guess that's, that's the other major thing, is instead of saying, I'm the man, I have to figure this out, I have to deal with this, uh, how am I going to do this? I can say, all I'm responsible to do today is to turn my life over to God and say, you are the man. We are to share the message with others. and. For me, that message is sharing with other people that, that Lord Jesus Christ is our hope, that it's through Him we have hope, and we should never be so desperate or willing to give up on life because Jesus is the answer and the way to our healing. God promises that none of our hurts will, uh, will go unused if we'll let Him, and uh, so it's just been a, a huge healing process for me, and it's been really neat to see others heal uh, through recovery. Through recovery, I figured out that God's grace is now. He cares about the pain that I have, and His grace is in full force. Is it hard? Is it difficult to, to work the steps and, and take a deep look at ourselves? Yes, it is, but it's through that pain that God grows us and draws us closer to Him. And there's just no greater gift than that. God has really uh, shown Himself through this program to me. I don't think there's anything more rewarding than seeing somebody who has had some uh, hurts, habits, or hang-ups that have have really kept them back. And uh, now they've been able to triumph over those things and and, uh, succeed in life. Just the faithfulness that God has for us is just, it's beyond measure when we're obedient to His Word. To be broken really has just been a tremendous gift. To, to really say, I know that I'm nothing. I know that God has to come in and make changes that are major. And I have to just be open to it and pursue that. And that's my only job, is to let God be God in my life. Celebrate Recovery is a wonderful ministry. It's Tuesday nights at 6.30. Jeff is in the back there. Jeff, would you wave to us? Thank you, Jeff. For He's our point person for Celebrate Recovery. So if you'd like to talk to him, you can uh, go on our website and get connected with uh, Jeff. His phone number's there uh, and how to um, get plugged in. So we encourage you to do that or in a home church or talk to somebody if you are struggling. I didn't mention uh, Covenant Eyes. It's a great filter. It's what we use on our home computer. It's what I have on my laptop. My wife is my accountability partner, partner as, as well as one of our elders that sees everywhere I go. And that is so freeing to know that I have that accountability. We're going to go to a time of communion now. Tim's going to play. And the uh, men, go ahead and come forward and pass out the elements. And I want to ask us now, as we're entering into this time, to ask God to prepare our hearts and to search our hearts. And if there is any sin, to be honest with Him and to confess it to Him, to not take communion in an unworthy manner. So let's go before the Lord now and ask Him to prepare our hearts to take of the elements.